I wanted to let you know that today is um, Holocaust Memorial Sunday in Shreveport. Um, the service is this afternoon at St. Mary of the Pines Catholic Church. It's a, I, it's, I want to say it's like the 30th. It's, it's been going on for a long time. I want to say this is the 30th annual, I think they said. Anyway, it's a multi-faith service. Um, Father Rothel Price, the Vicar General of the Diocese, is, is the chair of it this year. That rotates, the location rotates from year to year. It's something that the community really pauses to remember. And if you have not been, it's a very moving service. So I want to tell you a little bit about Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, which is the Jewish people's living memorial to the Holocaust. It safeguards the memory of the past, and it serves as the conscience of the present and as both a gift and a cautionary tale to the future. It encompasses a vast museum with both permanent and rotating installations. It has an educational center that offers resources both on-site and digitally that are available to the entire world. Their website alone is a treasure, and I would encourage you to, to check it out. Um, and also, they have the wall of the names of the righteous among the nations who are non-Jews who risk life, liberty, or position to save Jews with no ulterior motives to the rescue. So the standards, the criteria for being named among the righteous are really quite high. It has to be active involvement of the rescuer in saving one or several Jews from the threat of death or deportation to the death camps. There must be a risk to the rescuer's life, liberty, or position, again, as I said. Um, the initial motivation needs to be the intention to help persecuted Jews. That is, it's not for payment, it's not for any kind of reward, it's not for religious conversion of the person, and it's not for the adoption of a child. So as wonderful it is, as it is that uh, many children were probably adopted, that, um, that is not, these are for the rescuers who rescued because it was the right thing to do. The existence of testimony of those who were helped or at least unequivocal, unequivocal documentation establishing the nature of the rescue and its circumstances. So it's a fairly uh, elite group. It's no small thing that there are only three Americans on that wall and that two of them are Unitarian minister, the Reverend Waitstill Sharp, and his wife Martha who was a respected social worker. Their odyssey began in January of 1939 with a life-transforming phone call from the American Unitarian Association Vice President Everett Baker, asking the Sharps if they would take over the office of the Unitarian Service Committee in Prague, Czechoslovakia, where there was a large and fairly concentrated population of Unitarians. You know, we have a, some Unitarian history and still to this day sister congregations um, throughout Eastern Europe, um, Romania, I think especially where, where it used to be Transylvania. Um, and Reverend Baker stressed that this was to be the denomination's first intervention against evil, as he put it, and also that he'd already asked 17 other couples so imagine that feeling, contemplating what is yours to do, but also knowing you were the 18th choice to do it. Not to mention that you would have to leave your two children with close friends of the family in order to fulfill the assignment. By this time, Germany was already a fascist state, 
and the Nazis' annexation of Austria and part of Czechoslovakia had created a massive refugee crisis in the rest of Czechoslovakia and throughout Europe. And even from his safe haven in Wellesley, Reverend Sharp had preached in favor of taking in and aiding refugees, and this was not a popular position in the United States. The United States was very isolationist at this time. Um, there were memories of the hardships of World War I. They were in the midst of depression, and 83% of Americans opposed taking in refugees. Um, at a recent refugee conference, a conference had, that had just occurred in Evian, France, had resulted in 31 out of 32 countries, including the United States, flat out saying they couldn't take them. Um, ironically, it was the Dominican Republic that did say they would take them, but it was because their dictator believed in eugenics and thought that the Jewish people would improve the race of his country. So, you know, right thing, wrong reasons. Um, but it caused Hitler himself to say, nobody wants these criminals. And the refugee crisis in Czechoslovakia only got worse when shortly after the Sharps arrived in Prague um, in February of 1939, the Nazis also took over Prague. And then they forbade all refugee assistance. But the Sharps kept working. They kept giving out money. They kept falsifying papers and sneaking people out of the country at risk to their freedom and their lives. Their offices were ransacked several times. They had to alter their routes of going and coming because the Gestapo followed them almost all the time. Um, and in August of that same year, 1939, they learned through their networks that they were going to be arrested the very next day. And so they decided reluctantly that they had to get out of Prague. They had to, to live to fight another day. And so they went home for a little while, I think just a few months, to Wellesley, um, reunited with their kids, spent a little bit of peaceful time at home. But then they were called back to be a part of the newly formed Unitarian Service Committee and to take the assignment in Lisbon, Portugal, where they spent most of 1940 helping Jews, intellectuals, and other target, targeted people escape from Vichy, France. Um, and they continued to provide aid to refugees. So the stories are plentiful, and many of them read like a spy novel, although the danger was all too real. And I'll tell you um, just one. There was a world-famous German-Jewish author of historical fiction named Leon Feuchtwanger. I have practiced pronouncing that many times. Feuchtwanger. And um, he had been interred in France for his anti-Nazi writings. And so... Um, his wife had appealed to the service committee to help get him out, which they did. They helped him escape, and then dressed as a woman, he fled first to Marseille, France, where the Sharps then further organized his escape. They made a new identity card for him under the name of Wet Cheek. I love this. That is the English translation of Feuchtwanger. So, so, so he was now uh, Mr. Wet Cheek on his way to the United States. And um, they rented a room in Marseille across from the train station, but where they had access to a tunnel so that they could go through the tunnel to get into the station and bypass um, the guards that were checking very carefully at the, at the um, entrance to the train station. And so this is September of 1940 by now. Um, Martha Sharp is accompanying them, dressed as a native peasant woman. Um, Wade Still Sharp has already gone on to the Franco-Spanish border, the border of um, France and Spain. 
And um, there, he bribed the French border guards, but it was iffy because he didn't know if the same guards were going to be there by the time um, the, the Feuchtevangers got there. So um, very much an adventure, and, and very the danger, as I said, very real. And so um, they get to the border, and they decide Marta should go first. His wife is Marta, not to be confused with Martha. Um, and so she goes and actually kind of flirts with the guards, passes out cigarettes to everybody, well, as her husband kind of, you know, just moves through, just kind of shows his papers and moves through, and they're all very captivated um, by apparently the very charming Marta. And so they managed um, to cross over without incident. And then Waistel Sharp is, was already on the Spanish side, and the whole party continues on to Barcelona. And so they wanted to get to Lisbon, um, where then they could put this couple on a boat for New York, but the only way to fly to Lisbon was on Lufthansa, which obviously they did not want to do that. So uh, they took the train, and um, Wade Still Sharp bought a first-class ticket for um, Mr. Wetcheek, as he is now known, and um, a third-class ticket for um, for his wife. So they were traveling separately on the train, but Reverend Sharp kind of sat near um, Mr. Wetcheek the entire time just to kind of keep people at bay and kind of um, give him his privacy and hopefully keep the, the guards on the train away as well. Um, and so when they reach um, the Spanish-Portuguese border, he watched over him because at that time Franco was starting to cozy up to the Nazis, the, you know, the dictator of Spain, and he would have gladly handed them over. So when they finally arrived safely in Lisbon, um, they arranged for the Feuchtwangers to quickly board a ship heading for New York, and they sailed at the end of September 1940. At that time, they were assured that the U.S. government would allow their entry into the United States. They had connections at the other end. Um, and in 1976, Marta Feuchtwanger gave a lengthy account of their escape. She provided that documentation that, that um, Yad Vashem Required. After that escape, Martha Sharp went back to France and rescued a, a big group of children, nine of whom were Jewish. Um, and one of those is, was Eva Esther Feigl, or Feigl, who is pictured in your order of service. If you look inside, the white-haired woman that's standing there, and the second from right, I believe, is, is Martha, Martha, Con, Martha Content was her name, um, Martha Sharp. Wait still and Martha's daughter, who accepted the honor for them at Yad Vashem. So in light of the risks taken by the Sharps, first of being apprehended by the French authorities for helping Leon Feuchtwanger, Mr. Wetchik, um, for helping him avoid arrest, um, the offense of bribing French border guards, the equal risk of arrest while traveling incognito through Spain, and keeping in mind the Sharps' meritorious assistance to other Jewish fugitives of Nazi terror, Yad Vashem decided on September 9, 2005, to con confer upon the Sharps the title of Righteous Among the Nations. And as I just told you, their daughter did accept the honor um, and went, went to Yad Vashem and accepted the honor. Altogether, they rescued over 2,000 adults and children because it was the right thing to do. And so in light of this commemoration, in light of our professed respect for this interdependent web of all existence, what then is ours to do? If we believe in the idea that each one of us holds a thread and that the web is both immensely strong and extremely fragile, 
And as we teach our children, when we make the web with yarn, that the smallest tear and the smallest tug affects the whole, how do we each, as individuals and as a congregation, find our own role to play? I believe we have been learning as a congregation. We talked about this in the adult class this morning, talking about spiritual growth versus social justice. And to me, the answer is always yes, and that you have to keep those in balance. You need that spiritual nurture um, always to be able to do the work. But if you're, if you're just filling up, then it becomes kind of navel-gazing if you aren't going to walk it out and do, do for somebody else. But if you're always doing for somebody else, you're going to burn out. You're going you're to lose your energy for the work. And so the balance is so important. And I believe as a congregation, we, we have been moving more toward that balance in the last um, decade or so, I think. So just as we've learned that it takes a village, nurturing and sustaining the web requires a web. And as a religious community, we say we are better together. Ours is a faith built on covenant, and though we revere and celebrate the individual spiritual quest, we know that covenant requires community, and that walking all of these individual paths is a lot easier when we know that others are nearby, ready to pick us up when we fall, to walk with us when we are in need of that strength, to hold us accountable when we step out of covenant, or to simply hold us when we need that too. Um, a minister friend, the Reverend Joanna Crawford at Live Oak in Austin, said recently that when her young daughter had cancer and went through two rounds of chemo, she really cherished that old image of footprints in the sand, but not because she saw a second set of footprints and the one set when Jesus carried her, but because she saw multiple sets of footprints and only one set less when her community carried her. We are better together, and we are learning increasingly that we are even better together when our togetherness includes other faith communities, when we find partners in the work that is ours to do, and not only partners in the helping and the doing, but partners within the communities that we are ostensibly helping. I love the quote attributed to Delilah Watson, who's an, indig an indigenous Australian activist, which says, if you have come to help me, then you are wasting your time. But if your liberation is bound up with mine, then come, let us work together. We've probably learned more about this kind of work through our work with Northern and Central Louisiana Interfaith than in any other setting, because that organization never charges in with direct service. Every action begins with conversations and relationships. We discern the needs of a congregation, a community, even the state, and then we say to those most directly affected, what are you willing to do about it? And then there is training and facilitation and companionship and solidarity in the doing. And another great example has been the Church for the Highlands, who gave birth to Highland Center Ministries and the Blessing Dinner and all of the other services they provide now. It's become much more, even the dinner itself, which is a direct service, has become much more of a doing with event than a doing for. Just this past week, we had a full house, and we were about four tables short on hosts. That's the bad news. The good news is that at each of those four tables, we found a resident willing to step up and host his or her own table, um, a, a guest fully ready to step up and host his or her own table, um, taking that ownership. And others are helping us to set up tables beforehand, and a number of the youth help with cleanup in exchange for some basketball time after everything is put away. 
So we continue to use the dinner not only as a time of feeding and fellowship, but as a time to match people with needed resources, and to empower them with information and strategies to make their lives better. And wonder of wonders, we make our own lives better in the process. At a recent professional gathering of religious educators, our minister at the conference, the Reverend Deanna Vanderveer of New Orleans, asked us, how many of us like to help people? And of course, we raise our hands. We're DREs. That's what we do. And then she asked us, how many are comfortable receiving help? And of course, most of the hands kind of went down. And she said, if it's great to help and it's not so great to receive help, what does that say about the people you're helping? Now, this was February, and I had just done that little sermonette at Christmas about the importance of receiving. And I thought I was really all over that receiving thing. But hearing her put it that way, what does that say about the people you're helping that really... That was another one of those kind of little clicks, those little aha moments. Like, am I truly in the web with everybody else? Am I truly feeling that that we really are all holding up the same piece of this web? So we stand with the Sharps when we stand in solidarity with our interfaith partners, with our Muslim neighbors, with women seeking safe legal access to reproductive health care, not only abortion, but all of the medical and family-oriented services that I would think many of our political adversaries would support if their quest were really to prevent more abortions, with our LGBT friends and neighbors, with all who seek to stem the tide of mass incarceration and its devastating effects on a generation of young black men, with the people of Flint, Michigan, and much closer to home with the people of St. Joseph, Louisiana, in their quest for safe, clean water, and perhaps in the near future, with Syrian refugees in our own community. Let us honor the legacy of the Sharps by doing our part to mend and strengthen the web. May it be so.